haven't been here before, these AMAs are really for you all. It's a casual setting and opportunity for you to ask PLG sales leaders like Pete all of your questions that you might not have access to in other situations. So we are really, really excited to have Pete here. If you can ask your questions in the Slack channel, in the AMA discussions, We'll go through and answer it to for folks so that if they couldn't join today, they have some insight into what's going on. And we'll also have the log of all of these awesome discussions for the future. So I'll quickly intro Pete before turning it over to him. Uh, really pumped to be here. I met Pete, I think the first time about a year ago and then reconnected a couple months ago and was just blown away by all of his knowledge on everything product-led sales. And it makes sense considering he's worked on so many different product-led sales teams. So he's currently the VP of revenue at Rewatch. And formally, he was the first sales hire at Loom where he grew the business from one to 7 million in ARR. And he built out the entire sales and success team. And so he's had a lot of other sales roles, both IC and managerial, Intercom, Quip, and Box. So Pete, if you could start with a little bit of background of yourself, and then I will kick it off with a few questions. Hey, thank you so much for the, the nice intro there. I feel like you're overselling a little bit, but I certainly appreciate it. My name is Pete. Um, I'm a first and foremost, a basketball player by trade. I got to the chance to play in college. I played overseas for a little bit. I retired early. So this is my post-retirement career working in, in software sales. And, and uh, when I first got into it, I, I really didn't have a great sense of, of, of what sales was. I started off as a speechwriter, actually, then investment banking analyst, and then got into software sales kind of the same way that most people do. Just, you know, someone at a company that's cool and, and you think it's interesting over the past 10 years, what I've seen is this really cool and impactful transition and one where we're kind of at a new pivot point and everything's very hyped up. You know, these words can get very buzzy. Three years ago, it was ABM. Before that, it was responsible growth. Before that, it was growth at all costs. And, and we kind of go through these pivot points, but I think what's really cool about the, the moment in time that we're uh, in right now and, and the reason that companies like Pocus have such a, a, a cool chance to impact how go-to-market is done across a broad swath of companies is we're really shifting how folks buy uh, uh, software. We're shifting how you design to buy software. And we're at like a really cool nexus where you can change how you align, how you goal, and how you build collaboration or build collaborative teams at all these companies. And so it's something where it's nascent. Alexa and I laughed at our last call where... She was describing product-led sales on our first call like a year ago, and it was a term that nobody used and didn't really exist. Now, a year later, it's on every single LinkedIn post that you've interacted with for the past six months. So I don't know if Alexa was like the person who created that term. To call out Rob. He was one of the earlier ones. Smart. So, so it, it really pains me to give Philly sports fans like any credit, but... Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, what's really cool is, is we're all kind of entering this new nascent space. And while there's not a playbook to, to really do it right, we're starting to see some signals for the teams who do it well. That's why I think it's going to be a fun conversation today. I love it. Thank you, Pete. So something top of mind that I would love to start out with is what is it really like being a first sales hire at a PLG company? Because my understanding is it's very different than just going into a traditional sales company. You know the playbook, you go, you build the model, you build the team. What was it like at a PLG org? Yeah, I think, by the way, I, I assume candor and sort of like openness is, is welcome on these calls. The first time I made this transition was I was the second 
sales hire at Quip. Um, so Quip at the time was a 20 person company, Brett Taylor, incredibly smart, formerly CTO at Facebook, now um, moving into a co-CEO role at, at uh, Salesforce. But Quip at the time was this 20 person plucky startup that had developed like a better way of creating collaborative document. It was kind of like a better, more elegant version of Google Docs that allowed you to do more within the framework of spread, almost like a precursor to Notion, Airtable, tools like that. And I took after my first three and a half years, four years at the at Box, what I thought was a great resume, a great sales book. And it was kind of the old Aaron Ross predictable revenue sales book, uh, playbook. And I went to, to Quip as the second sales employee and nothing worked. It was a completely different sale. We didn't have, uh, we had an established product market fit. We didn't understand who our ICP was. We didn't understand like exactly what those levers were that would lead someone to payment or how to balance kind of like the sales led part of the business versus like driving self-service. So, so I think my, my most impactful learning here was from taking the playbook that made me really successful at Box, trying to apply it equip and just utterly failing. And so, so I took that, I went to Intercom as one of the first five or so sales hires and had a really fun five-year run there and in, in a variety of roles. But one of the real kind of guiding metrics or guiding forces at Intercom was, hey, let's go right tool for right job. For SMB customers, let's make sure that they're having as easy and in-product experience to self-serve. If we need to help them and kind of build out a sales assist role or over-index on success support, we'll do that early with a little bit of a trade-off on efficiency, but winning kind of brand sentiment at the time. That to me really resonated. Like that has informed kind of every job and every company I've looked at since is this idea of right tool and right job. And in a previous life at Loom, I, I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to talk to Yamini Rangan, who's the CEO now at uh, HubSpot, but formerly the, the, the chief customer officer. And when I asked her, like the stock price at the time had gone up, you know, hundred percent over a six month period. She, her thing was at HubSpot when she joined, she wanted to leverage humans against the most impactful jobs, jobs that humans should do and try and build an automation everywhere else. It's, it's a really simple uh, guiding philosophy. It's harder to do and harder to do at scale. But I thought that that was just so smart and so easy of like, let's figure out what jobs humans are best at and where they can be most impactful and then really try to automate everything else. I love it. Very cool. So you made a comment that the sales models were different between all the different companies and it could not be copy and paste. Can you dive more into that? Why you think it has to be more kind of unique to each company? Yeah, I think that a lot of the folks on this call are early stage go-to-market leaders or early stage CEOs. And some of this should really inform how you think about who's that first head of sales or maybe your first director of sales or, or early hires. One of the kind of early yellow flags or things that you want to dig into is, hey, at Intercom, this is our playbook and this is exactly how we're going to recreate it here. I think that's that's erroneous thinking. And that was something I was lucky enough to learn early in my career is we had this incredible product market fit early days, this feels like so long ago, but it was like SharePoint was the big bad that we had to beat. And so it was, let's figure out how to beat SharePoint. We're going to be more accessible across the cloud, across devices. And we're going to be really user-centric in a way that no other tool is combined with a really strong security play. And so Box was like very tight on the pitch, on the positioning, exactly kind of like how they went to market and how we could leverage the tools and resources that we had. And then I took the playbook that I learned there um, and applied it to a company that was way earlier in, in determining product market fit, way less clear in terms of their 
ultimate value proposition and really who's involved in that sale. And that was the big delta. That was like a real learning early on is, hey, you have to look with fresh eyes and understand what's the uh, what's the value proposition? Does the end user that we're serving with that value proposition have buy authority? If you're bringing a new behavior to market, is this going to be someone who understands kind of what the carrot and the stick is in a way that is going to drive them to upset the, the status quo? And then like, what are the tools? Is this a human-led thing? Is this a product-led thing? Like, how can we leverage automation to, uh, to influence that decision and, and sell more effectively? And so I think that that all of that, although painful at the time, it was really important to learn. And, and I, I, that's just one kind of thing that I'd uh, caution anyone who's kind of hiring their first head of sales is if someone comes in and says, hey, this is the playbook at Slack, this is the playbook at Dropbox, this is the playbook at Intercom, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the playbook for you. So make sure you're digging deep into uh, core competencies and to, to really understanding how that's going to impact your buyer, your business, and, and how you're going to build a go-to-market. Super interesting. It's a good point that you, especially in PLG, where the end users and the split between human and product and how you want to go to market is so different. It's not copy and paste. You need to be very intentional going from one company to the next. One more question before I hand it over. I'm curious how you transition from being a sales IC to a manager. And if maybe you were to give yourself advice back then, what would it have been now? Oh yeah, man. I remember this. This was like kind of a terrifying, I think you go up the the wrong later and you do more strategic stuff and there are challenges at everything you do. But the first time I went from a sales IC to, to a manager role, it, it was a really scary transition. So they're kind of broad generality things where when you are a first-time manager, you tend to think that it's your job to be the super rep and to have answers to everything. And that immediately turns you into somebody who micromanages your employees and totally burns people out. So I think like, you know, outside of the, the general advice of it's okay to not know things, it's important to let people fail when failure is an option. There are going to be some deals where failure is not an option and knowing how to sort of like jump in and make sure that you tie off on those is really, really important. But yeah, I was lucky in that the first employee I had to get promoted and role is actually somebody I brought to to my current company and just love working with. I really, really was so happy when this person got a promotion. It it totally like it changed kind of like how I validate and how I got energy at work. So yeah, I think that the the, the high level stuff is it doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers. Uh, you want to allow people to fail where possible and where not possible. That's where you need to to help stand them up. And then just to be honest with yourself on, on is this something that you really like and, and want to do more of? The the last piece on product-led that I think I would have told myself at Intercom is my first team was an experimental team. We effectively, I got six reps to prove out 3.5x ROI against a subset of the business that was being underserved over a six-month period. I had a finance team who didn't believe in kind of the role and, and had some real questions about it. I had a, a sales leader who wanted to push this forward. And it was kind of a trial by fire of like, can we prove out these metrics in a really discreet amount of time? And so it was super intense. We were able to prove out actually a 5.5x uh, return on investment over that six month period. But it was a lot of, of sort of incremental and fast changing and the role totally changed, which meant that some people thrived and, and others didn't. I think that for product-led companies, because we're kind of earlier and in, in, in what best and class looks like, and because you're going to be more experimental with like how you set up these teams, how you goal these teams, really focusing on explaining the why when you make a change 
it's so easy to try and stay agile and change things, but it can create a really disruptive IC experience. The advice that I would tell myself is when we change the scope of the role and we change the role focus, which happened every month for that team, to really, really share more around like the why and the thinking and bring people under the umbrella because it, it, it just makes for a more collaborative and, and, and better experience for ICs, I think. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Pete. Question from Sandy in the, the channel is, what would you recommend for first hire, sales hires in their first 90 days? So I know in a traditional sales org, that's probably, again, it's the playbook, you know, meet with your counterpart that's an SDR, maybe a marketer, try to figure out your target account list and go. But in the PLG world, when you were hiring your first sales reps at Loom or Intercom, et cetera, what happens in those first 90 days? I think I had this conversation with another early stage founder who's hiring their first head of sales and, and I'll vacillate between head of sales and ICs on this, but it's really important when you're hiring your first sales team or, or sales leader to understand one, that people have areas in which they spike and areas that are, are opportunities for improvement. There was an emergence capital article on this on like how to sell or how to hire your first founder and the different archetypes of, of heads of sales. And it, it breaks down between like four or five different competencies. Are they deal? Are they deal people? Are they uh, process people? Are they dashboard? Like there's different competencies. For PLG companies, the most important thing is when you look at your business today, what do you need that first hire to do? So do you need them to capitalize on a healthy, organic, and inbound set of free users? Do you need them to build top of funnel for you? Do you feel like you're already at a stage of product market fit where you're looking to scale up? And this is, I need somebody to come in and immediately hire four SDRs and two AEs. There's just different competencies to think for. And, and it's a really different value proposition. The other part of it is whenever advising like early heads of sales on, on what companies to join, I think it's super important to have a great and candid conversation between that hire and your CEO around, Hey, here's how far I think I can take you. Like, I have the background scaling companies to 10 or $20 million in ARR when we're at a team of you know 30 plus and we're really leveraging outbound. That's actually not my skill set. Like that might be the time when we say like it's appropriate to bring in and layer somebody else, or maybe I've shown enough and, and grown enough in, in seat to take you to that next stage. And so yeah, I think that the high level note there would be like one, really try and interview and assess like where does this potential leader spike and what are the areas of opportunity or just areas that they haven't proven yet? And then two, how far can this person take you? Do you think that this is a person that can take you through B? Is this somebody who can take you through C and being really honest and candid with that? One of the, the statistics that every sales leader talks about is average tenure for a first set of sales is 18 months or 17 months, depending on the studies. And so it's it's not a, a really healthy statistic, but you know, being honest and open around what the expectations are, what's most important now, and then how that changes between 6, 12, 18 months. I think that's super important. I love that. And I have like 18 questions as a follow-up, but George, I'll let you I'll let you ask your question. Nice to nice to meet you. I remember Russ. I interviewed Russ really early for a podcast I was doing when he had just joined. So he's a good good dude. My quick question was uh, based on your experience being early at Intercom, for example. You know, when you're still kind of trying, you're building out the sales motion, how much as an organization do you say, you know what, I 
you know, we're running into maybe some, you know, some learnings and this sort of thing, but we're going to continue to push the product to be the main acquirer of users, right? Versus let's just throw some bodies, let's get a little more territory, let's get, a, you know, some more customers kind of use, you know, the human piece for a little more, and then we'll back in to the P, you know, to the product doing it, you know, what, how do you kind of determine that balance? Yeah. So if I understand the question, it's really like how, how intensely do we want to buy it on product being the lever that we go to here versus leaning on kind of like sales or human resources. And this is my super biased approach or, or response to that. So take it for what it's worth early days, you want to optimize for what's best for the customer. Like you want to win logos, you want to have positive brand sentiment, you want to show that that growth is kind of the driver there. And one of the early learnings at, at Intercom, it took a couple of years for us to really get there is we had to break some dogma around being incredibly, uh, you know, opinionated about where sales would operate versus where sales would we had a lot of like earlier stage customers that were high growth, interesting VC funded companies that wound up becoming really big customers. And when we were free to sort of get them in front of uh, salespeople, they tended to grow at a 1.7x rate and they, uh, they were 120% more likely to renew than customers who didn't. And so for us, like us breaking a little bit of dogma and us challenging our efficiency focus early turned out to be a great kind of growth lever and just the right thing to do for the customer. But I also think that like, there's a goal setting component to this where if you're setting up your KPIs organizationally where growth or marketing has one goal and then sales has another goal where you're creating kind of like diametrically opposed incentives, that's where you can really get into trouble. Like that's where like teams start to say, hey, is sales cannibalizing our self-serve business or is self-serve like overstepping? Like there's a way that with kind of the CRO model and with having shared numbers between sales marketing or growth teams, that you can create a little bit more unity of purpose amongst go-to-market teams. This is super important for product-like growth companies. Like it's really, really important, especially early on to not get too caught up in the, here's, here's my side of the business that's overperforming. And here's my side of the business that's underperforming. If you can create shared goals between sales and marketing in particular, I, I think you're setting yourself up for a better run there. I love that. That was such a good answer. And I actually was just, Sandy and I were just having a conversation with um, someone in a similar role at Airtable. And they said that was exactly the same reason for success, the shared goals. One thing, one more question I have around kind of general sales strategic decisions before going into more tactical things is we talked a lot uh, before about kind of what to look for in a sales hire and having those conversations before you hire, whether it's a head of sales, a sales IC, whether it's early days or later on. Something I'm curious about is how you actually screen for a good sales rep at a PLG company in the interview process. Because my perspective is that it's going to be a little bit of the traditional sales selling skills of empathy and understanding customer needs and being, you know, customer facing, but also maybe a little more data driven around, I can understand what a PQL is. So I'm curious if you have any tactical recommendations of what that interview process looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, I'm going to be so gross and, and say that I wrote something on open view for this. So maybe I can send that over, but that's so self-promoting. That's not gross. Our last speaker was from open view. <laughs> 
I, I feel so gross about that, but but I, I can send that over for more tactical questions on like your first sales hire. I think the high level thoughts would be for early sales hires, whether they're leadership or IC, you're optimizing a little bit more for the missionary versus mercenary. So you want to find somebody who's who's really out to build a business and incentivize and works to build a business, understanding that it's not just maximizing sales and maximizing revenue against a comp plan, but it's actually figuring out what's working, what's not, relaying product feedback early, relaying objections and getting really, really collaborative and tightly built in with product design engineering as well as marketing. And then I think the other thing that, especially for product-led growth companies is you need to have someone who's able to, to look at unit economics early and understand what's working, what's not, and where you want to grow the business. And so if you have someone whose only experience is from building direct sales teams with enterprise background, they're going to probably index more towards like the traditional enterprise sale, which is going to work for your 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 top market or, or real upmarket customers, but might not work for the business. You know, it, it might be something where then SMB and and sort of down market suffers. And then I think the last thing I'd say, especially for for product like growth companies, is your early sales hires have to be able to put on the success hat. Like they need to be able to get on with customers. Like when you sign a deal with a customer, it really means your job's beginning. Anyone can cancel and get out of it. It's so rare that you enforce a contract with someone when they're looking to cancel. So it's just important to know that like one of the trade-offs of the SaaS model is you have to be continually customer-centric, which means that your early go-to-market people, you have to feel like great about them, talking to your customers, working with customers over a long time. And then one personal bias there is, I love early sales hires who can leverage project management principles, like people who can like do a little bit of, of the project management of, of owning that customer lifecycle long-term. If you're selling to small enterprise uh, or large enterprise um, or looking to sell to those, that's a really, really valuable skill set and something that just kind of helps with a lot of the feedback loops and the cross-functional work that those early hires do. That's awesome. I love that. And I totally resonate with the wanting to, you know, in the beginning sales in PLG isn't traditional. And so there has to be some success on product management. And then that also all goes back to almost the, what a sales assist role has to look like or product specialist, where it's kind of a Venn diagram of sales, success, and other things like product management. Any questions on org structure, sales hiring before I get a little more tactical? Cool. Before we move too far away, Pete, you mentioned a, a test that you did. I can't remember if it was Box or Intercom, but you said you guys were able to prove out 3.5x ROI on an underserved part of the customer base. How did you guys define ROI in that specific experiment? So for this experiment, this was a dumb definition. It was literally like employee salary, a roll-up of, of fully loaded costs, and then the revenue impact we were able to drive over a six-month period. And so this was this was more of a like net dollar retention thing of with existing customers, were we able to drive X dollar impact? And, and we we just did it against fully loaded costs of the team. But yeah, that that for for that specific experiment was it was pretty straightforward. And it was just NDR on anyone that they touched, or were you comparing like an incremental NDR on people they touched versus self-serve? We, uh, oh God, you're bringing back some like terrifying memories, Rob. We, uh, so the way that we structured this was we had six reps in seat that I hired, each one of which managed roughly 150, 200 customers 
um, within a certain segment of, of our spend, it, it net out to be like, I think 45 million ARR total, but uh, we, we created a seventh book, like a test book that was unmanned. And any customers who fell in that book did not have access to sales. I mean, we're not messaged, did not take place. And so we compared like an A-B test. It was so painful because early on, we were seeing signals that like human intervention really had positive impact. And we were able to drive some, some way larger customers than we thought. But then we had this one book of customers that was continuously underserved and was really loud on Twitter at the time which is why I think you're giving me some of the scariest and, and even talking through this. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. That was awesome. I appreciate it. I'd like to uh, maybe to get away from the scaries, maybe some, some positive experiences. Uh, when you were at Loom, you know, you took it from a million AR to 7 million. So you were there, you, by definition of product market fit, had product market fit. You probably had a lot of user growth. How did you go from zero to one to one to a hundred? Or other words, how did you go from high user growth to high revenue growth? What were some of the things that you say that thing we did led to success, whether it was through data, through the team or through something else? Yeah. So Loom, incredible product, really cool company, uh, cool team. And I joined in, I don't know, January of... uh, one year, so 2020. And in March of 2020, with COVID's first kind of outbreak, within a month, we saw users 23x overnight. And so our business, which was at about a million dollars of revenue, the past, the prior August had just released a paid personal version. All of a sudden became like, we pulled forward the hypotheses for the business by like two or three years. It just ramped up so fast overnight, which was wild and, and really cool. But also it, it just pulled forward like a lot of change in a really abbreviated timeline. And I think when I look back, some of the learnings I had from that experience were, we kind of had this idea when I joined of, we're going to do a initially four, but then turned into a six month beta of developing and then testing a business and then enterprise version of the product. With the business version, we're going to introduce some sort of team management components with the enterprise version. We're going to have that plus some security functionality. And over the course of that that four and then eventually six month uh, period, we played around a lot with pricing, packaging, and sort of like how we'd feature match at each level, as well as work to build a lot of usage, a lot of positive sentiment and inroads with our enterprise customers. Now, the, the learning that I have from that experience, and, and I know that going through that beta experience is like really undefined and can be seen kind of ambiguous. The learning that we had was we were all building for the enterprise. We prioritize the enterprise, but we didn't really have a definition of what the enterprise was and wasn't. So is the enterprise IBM? you know, like a a giant, incredibly complicated, incredibly security intensive company, or is enterprise like a a Zendesk or a GitHub, which is, you know, three or 4,000 person company, publicly traded company, you know, like, like what does enterprise mean? And uh, I think that that was one of the the more interesting learnings was we would be uh, on the call with a big five bank. And then we were also on enterprise calls with 2000 or 1000 person B2B SaaS company. Uh, and, And this was like a really interesting realization of the road to selling like true, true giant top of the top end enterprise is so different from just up market. So maybe one kind of shifting over to the, the learnings piece is like define upmarket for your company. 
you know, define uh, enterprise doesn't need to be JP Morgan Chase. Enterprise could be maybe it's a 500 person company at your stage. Maybe it's a thousand person company. And then within those companies, really try to understand who's your buying committee, who's going to be the end user who likes using this. Do they have buy authority? Who do they need to convince? How do you make an ROI case for that champion? And, and how do you get eventually your sales folks kind of multi-threaded in at these different levels? The last thing, and this is like one of my like, uh, like really soapbox items is free usage does not mean paid conversion. It's an incredibly powerful signal of there's something here. Hey, we can go in and figure out how to build consensus and kind of move up to an org-wide or team-wide deployment. But it's really erroneous thinking to, to, to think that we have 20 users on our product team. Of course, they're going to go org-wide with this. And so I think that like really challenging, what are the steps and understanding the individual motivations of like how you move from that end user IC to a, a director level or somebody who has budget and then from there to go to org wide, like that's the journey that you should really be mapping out, especially as you move gently up market. That's a really good point. And I especially like the definitions of enterprise. And I'm curious to push on that a little more. How did you define up market and how do you define enterprise and how did you define those segments? Yeah, I was thinking on this before the call, um, defining enterprise, it, it's really important that you're working from a shared definition, but it, it's really influenced by pricing packaging, right? Like if you're a consumption-based model, it's really different than if you're license-based. If you're license-based or maybe like there's an industry bent, it can be way more straightforward than consumption-based. But yeah, I think that, that in, in the cases that, that I've worked, it's been primarily license-based which means that full-time employee count can be a, a happy proxy for this. But yeah, I, I think it starts to get a little bit more complicated with consumption-based, but there are ways to do it. Yeah, that's a good point. So were you, as you were experimenting with your customer segmentation, were you also experimenting simultaneously with pricing and packaging? Yes. Got it. And then did your org structure align to that? I think eventually. <laughs> okay. Uh, and pricing packaging, again, this is going to give me the same scary as that Rob gave me earlier. During my roughly five years at Intercom, we went through 14 different iterations of pricing and packaging, which was a lot. Like if there's hindsight is, is 2020 and Intercom was, was super successful. I was so lucky to be there. But at the same time, like if there's one thing that everyone who was at Intercom at that time wished that we, we'd done differently or uh, done better, it was pricing packaging. And, and really like... Understanding that when you're you're you know pushing changes, especially across a large user base, it creates kind of a frenetic experience for your customers, and you can lose goodwill. You can lose uh, a goodwill, or actually like kind of increase paranoia uh, amongst the customer base. So, so yeah, pricing packaging—it's the gift that keeps giving. It's something that every company is kind of working through. But but yeah, I think that's one where it's hard to decouple how you segment go to market without really digging in and feeling like people are, folks are aligned on price and packaging. Yeah, that totally, totally agree. Paul, do you have a question on that or just a comment? It's more of a comment because, uh, you know, we're talking about product like sales here and we're talking, about, we're talking about sales in general, but like when you talk to SaaS people, it's like pricing, churn, go to market, period. That is kind of like, and it's just good to hear like at this level that people are still suffering from like these same challenges because I think like anyone who's running a SaaS business that's like a small scale, it reinforces that they're not doing it wrong. So I think like these are really good messages for, for people to hear. 
I think that's that's like a common thing, though. It's like when you've had the I, I've been super lucky to work at, at great companies, and it always feels messy. Like it, it always feels like way messier at the time. So like I, I, a lot of our world is window dressing and posting on LinkedIn or doing fancy AMAs and pretending like you have all the answers. It's totally okay if things feel messy because they always are. Yeah. I mean, I agree because, well, I think what, like my experience, I can't talk about like the whole market, but my experience is a lot of people just go, okay, like we're either going to do this or we're just going to look at the competition and we're going to go somewhere in the middle and just go from there. And I think you know, you should try and get behind your value a little bit more because I think that then plays into your go-to-market and your messaging and that brings a different sort of confidence into the sales conversation. I had a, a thought on that as well. It's depending on your organization, like not every org is going to be kind of like as collaborative on pricing. Like I've worked in companies where like product really owns that. And then I've worked in companies where like, there's like a bot, like a committee that decides pricing that has representation from finance and all these others. I'm curious in your experience, Pete, like at the companies you worked for was how did sales kind of like show up at that table to have their voice heard on pricing and packaging? And do you have any advice on how to get your voice heard? If it's not currently being considered. Yeah, Sandy, I love that question. So again, super biased from the, the the sales and sales leadership perspective, but I think that if what you're hearing around pricing from a, a frontline sales perspective is not being fed into like the pricing packaging discussions, it's a miss. And I think that the easiest way, and it took us a couple of years at Intercom to, to actually set this up. Intercom was so successful with self-serve that in the early days, it was almost like a, Hey, do we need sales or, you know, what's sales role here? And, and it took us a while to sort of like find that seat at the table or find the right way of, of, of communicating feedback. The, the place that we settled on eventually, and it, it really improved kind of like how sales and product design engineering worked in, in concert was creating a framework and like a bi-monthly meeting where, where folks would, for product feedback, they would categorize things as blockers, hurdles, or nice-to-haves, and then list out specific deals and customers that had requested a feature for pricing and packaging feedback. They had, eventually we invested in Gong and tools like that. So we'd add like anecdotal moments on calls, but also deals lost as a result of this. And what was important here is to move away from anecdotal feedback, which I am so guilty of. Everybody on a sales team is like, Hey, I'm talking to this big customer. If we just build this one feature, if we just do this one thing, we create a custom pricing plan, we're going to close the business. And that's actually like, it might be the right thing to do at the time, but it's not a good way to build your business. Investing in having a shared language and kind of a framework for how do you take go to market feedback? How do you share that with project design engineering? Is this something that's like deal specific and anecdotal, or can you take a programmatic approach to like, is this a blocker? Is this just a hurdle? Or is this something that's a nice to have? It's a great way of keeping folks honest and having accountability on both ends and not optimizing for only what's beneficial to sales in the short term. So yeah, I, I think trying to find that framework and, and the right way to do it for your business is super early for pricing packaging or just for product feedback in general. Love that. Alexa, we need that framework. <laughs> yes. Lot, lots of customer feedback. No, but a big takeaway of what I'm hearing from everything today, whether it's like prioritizing roadmap or pricing and packaging or sales organization structure is just having alignment across every team, whether it's sales, marketing, product, 
et cetera. And I think that's a really good takeaway for everyone to just remember if you want things moving forward and you want the company to have accountability, just having that alignment across the organization and even alignment in your interviews. When you're hiring a salesperson, make sure you and that salesperson is, are aligned on what can we get out of the sales motion and what are our goals and what do what does the company expect? What do you expect? So I really appreciate that and everything else. Pete, you have incredible wisdom into all things, not only tactical PLG and sales, but also more so you know strategic, how to build a team, how to think about things from a high level. So I really appreciate your time here today and I learned so much and thank you again. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is super fun. I think it's one of those where if folks have questions or stuff I can be helpful with, please reach out. I'm just on LinkedIn or, you know, and I think the one call out here is I'm happy to share from past wins and things that we've done in the past. A lot of these are, are, are learnings from like past failures or stuff to do better. And, and like, that would be kind of the, the takeaway is we're all kind of entering this new chapter. We're entering this new space and we're developing uh, best practices, what best in class looks like in PLG companies. And it's fucking exciting. So so I think that would be the, the ultimate takeaway is like, if it feels messy, that's okay. But uh, but you guys have a great community and, and Alexa and Sandy building this as a, a forum to kind of learn from and to stay in touch with each other. I think that's a, a real competitive advantage for the companies who, uh, who participate in this. Thanks, Pete. And thank you everyone else for joining. And I will see you all soon. Bye, y'all.